Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and french fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at oceocean.com. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. This on? Hello? Hello? We're all science people. Science! Exactly. Evolution does some pretty funky things. That is a false fact. The old question in science is how do you know that? Achievement equals skill times effort. That's the recipe for success. I'm about to show you something so cool it'll blow your mind. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Welcome, welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye. This is the show where science rules. It's a call-in show if you want to be on the show and I hope you do, leave us a voicemail at 201-472-0785 or go to www.askbillnye.com. You can also check me out on all the social media that the young people use to find out about our upcoming guests. I am joined once again, my friends, by science writer, editor, and dear friend, for reals, Corey S. Powell. Greetings, Corey. Greetings, Bill. I'm so glad you haven't gotten tired of me yet. Um, <laughs> I didn't say that. Okay. I didn't say that. You know, a, a good point. I, I'll be more careful in what I and uh, the assertions that I make in the future. But look, I, I love doing this podcast. I love the sense of we have some normalcy here, if I may use the word. We try to keep some normality going out in the world. And the world is fe- starting to feel a little more normal again. And one of the ways I know the world is getting a little more normal is when I walk outside in my Brooklyn neighborhood, it smells like marijuana everywhere again. You know, there was that period when people were staying indoors and they were all masked and, and the smell went away. But, you know, it got to the point where you just smell that all the time. And that smell is back like, oh, the world is coming back. Marijuana is everywhere again. And it made me wonder, why is marijuana everywhere now? And the stores are selling CBD oils. You know, there's a whole movement to spread the legalization of marijuana. It feels like the attitudes are really changing. There's a seems to be a lot more research going on, but I'd like to I'd like to understand it, I'd like to know what's going on behind all this uh, delightful normal smell going on in my neighborhood. Well, Corey, you have once again hit the nail headwise. Yes, our guest today is Dr. Margaret Haney. She is professor of neurobiology at the Columbia University Medical Center and the director of the Cannabis Research Laboratory, or CRL. Uh, Dr. Margaret Haney, welcome to Science Rules. May I call you Meg? Yes, please do. Fabulous. Okay. Fundamentally, first question I think anybody would ask, what goes on at the old cannabis research laboratory? What do we do there? We, we, we want to get a picture of it. 
Yeah, no, I really have the best job on the planet. Um, I have one of the very rare laboratories. It's called a residential laboratory where I can bring in non-treatment seeking daily marijuana smokers. They live in the lab with me. They smoke marijuana in the lab with me and I measure their behavior around the clock, 24 hours a day, sleep, food intakes, uh, cognitive performance, heart rate and blood pressure. So I really can get a very nuanced time dependent sense of what uh, marijuana is doing behaviorally. And, you know, I'm a behavioral pharmacologist by training. So I a um, behavioral pharmacologist help us out there. So it's really a, a careful analysis of the effects of drugs on behavior. So, you know, early on, my first studies with with cannabis in this laboratory was to really document if there was a withdrawal syndrome from cannabis. And again, I had the perfect place to do that because I could have people smoke repeatedly throughout the day. Then I switch their active cannabis with placebo cannabis. How do we get placebo cannabis? All cannabis studies conducted um, by federally funded researchers is, is provided by the government. So there's a farm in Mississippi that grows cannabis and provides it to people studying it, um, you know, who have federal funds to study it. It's the only cannabis I can study. Agricultural professionals have found a type of marijuana that does not get you high? Well, no. What they do there for the placebo is they extract the THC. So it is cannabis and they take out Delta-9 THC, which is the active, really the active component. How do you get it out? Uh, it's alcohol extraction. Oh. I don't do it. <laughs> Good old alcohol okay. extraction, Corey. Okay. What but, but, a, but a person smoking cannot tell the difference? That's a really good question. Um, what they experience is, is a good expectancy effect. So what I tell participants who move into the lab is I'm going to be giving you cannabis. Uh, the strength is going to change at any time. You'll tell me what you're feeling, but um, I'm not going to tell you what I'm giving you. And so when I switch out active for placebo, I get a very nice little time-dependent increase in ratings of I feel high and I feel like a good drug effect. They think it's weak cannabis. So, you know, it does taste similar. It's not quite as tasty, I gather, but they think it's weak, which is an important part of me maintaining my, my blind. So doing the study, we were able to really track across all these behavioral measures, withdrawal symptoms, how long they take to peak and then go away. So you got, this is where you got to smoke the tail of the dog that bit you or something like that. You know, like with all drugs, you know, those withdrawal symptoms go away when you get a little bit of that drug again. It's like a hangover. Not that I would know. I've heard. Mm -hmm. How long do they stay in the lab? These are people who have self-selected, who can leave what I would consider a job for a number of days or what have you to like get high. Okay. So these are self-selected people. But Absolutely. Yeah. There's a bias. How long do they stay with you? Well, it depends on the study. You know, I've done, I've been doing this for over 20 years. You know, I've had people stay as long as three weeks. It's long. They don't go outside. They don't have their cell phone. They don't talk to their family because I want to control for all those confounds. You know, they get in a fight with their girlfriend. They'll be in a bad mood. And if they, you know, w win a bet, they'll be in a good mood. So so it's a very controlled environment. I bring four of them in at a time. Um, and of course, there's consequences of being in that controlled environment, but I can control for that. <laughs> Most of our studies, they're about a week. When you were first describing it, you said that you, in your job, you get to smoke with the with these people. You mean that you're observing them smoke. You yourself are not participating. No, 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 no. Please, let's make that really clear. Yeah, I am not partaking. No, um, it, they are, you know, they're on cameras. There's cameras and microphones in the lab. And we actually, we're so controlling. We control how they smoke. 
So I know exactly how much of each cigarette that they're getting. I time their inhales. I time their exhalation. So I come from a um, preclinical training. You know, I really worked with rats and mice and non-human primates beforehand. So I, I, I approach, <laughs> I approach my, my work in this very controlled way. Okay. So who funds this research? Uh, the National Institute of Drug Abuse, it's, a, it's a, a branch of the National Institute of Health. They fund most research and they fund our research. So what's, the, what's a big finding that you found? Well, honestly, you know, my original documentation of this time-dependent pharmacologically specific withdrawal syndrome was, you know, a, a real start to my whole career um, because there hadn't really been that that sort of research. There had been suggestions that something happened, but to be able to show the time course of each symptom and to show that it's pharmacologically specific, that if I can give a very low dose of THC, all those withdrawal symptoms go away. So it's not just people being grouchy about being in the lab. It's it's literally a, a, a withdrawal from the active ingredient to cannabis. So that was that started off a whole career from there is was really documenting in a carefully controlled way this withdrawal syndrome which isn't well known, you know, to be honest, most people aren't terribly aware that that happens. I lived in Seattle in Washington state, which is one of the first states to legalize marijuana. And the question everybody had, which seems to me tied to this withdrawal, how long it stays in your system, what everybody wondered about when this whole thing started was, is there a test, a sobriety test for, uh, the effects of marijuana. And is there a way a cop who pulls a guy over could tell whether or not he's high? No. And it's actually a real problem. It's a real problem. And it has to do with the complexity of the, the pharmacokinetics of THC, you know, so, so unlike alcohol or cocaine or heroin, you know, those are all water soluble and, you know, their absorption is very clear. The level of alcohol in your blood predicts behavior pretty well which is why we can have a breathalyzer that's pretty good for say, for for measuring impairment, right? You know, we can see uh, this amount of alcohol in your blood predicts this amount of impairment. And we're going to say as a society that if it's above this, we're, we're not going to say you should drive. You know, you're in trouble if you drive. I don't see how we're ever going to get there with THC. It's lipophilic. It gets absorbed into all the tissues. The levels of THC in your blood don't predict very well what your behavior is. Let's break down that word lipophilic. It sticks to to fat in your body. Is that what that means? Yeah, where like alcohol is water soluble, right? You know, dissolves right into water. THC does not. The the cannabinoids, all the component of that plant, like fat, they get into your fat cells and they get distributed very, very quickly. And the plasma levels, it's it's so remarkable, don't predict behavior well. So um, you could be very impaired if you have an edible, for example, you could be very, very impaired. Your plasma levels could be very, very low. It just gets absorbed out of the bloodstream into the body so fast that the blood doesn't predict it. So I don't know the answer. And I think it's a really significant question is how we do field sobriety, because right now, I don't think any of them pass. There's some behavioral tests, but unless you have a baseline, you know, what people were doing before they started, that's not going to be a I don't think that holds up in court. So it's a, it's an almost intractable problem with THC. You were saying that the THC gets into your fat cells that it, you know, and that it gets kind of embedded in the body. Does that mean it stays with you a really long time? Do we know how long? 
It does, you know, and it's it does kind of seep out over time. Like you could be and it depends really on how much how heavily you were smoking. So um, I don't know if it's known very, very well, but I know that there's evidence that heavy smokers stop and that THC is slowly leaching out of their cells for quite a while. And whether it stays high enough for you to fail a blood test, I mean, or a, a urine test for a job, for example, you know, it varies by a lot, by you know, your fat content, your sex, all these sorts of things. A lot of things we don't entirely have worked out. But, you know, we've done studies comparing people smoking and people taking cannabis orally, you know, and the level of intoxication will be the same. We can get them both really pretty intoxicated, but the blood levels of THC will be so like hundredfold higher when they smoke. It just it just goes from the lungs to the blood, to the brain, and it's much, much higher. So the other people are just as intoxicated, but their levels are so low to the point that they'd probably pass even a field sobriety test if, if, if they took it. Meanwhile, they're intoxicated beyond belief. So how do you know they're intoxicated? Is it self-reporting? It is. It is. And, you know, that's it's pretty lawful. Drug users, uh, you know, they're very good about reporting the way that they're feeling and you could see changes over time and you could see changes with the amount that you give them so so the bulk of abuse liability for drug drug studies is self-report there's not a lot of other ways to get at do people like the effect that they're feeling but does their do their pupils dilate or do their uh, hand eye uh, motor skills deteriorate the, the the best the kind of the most predictable is increased heart rate that one is your objective outcome measure that you could see somebody has smoked or used cannabis is there. And, and, and that will follow the time course of I feel high. So I knew a guy who, I guess, suffered from marijuana withdrawal strongly, and he ended up dying. He ended up dying of a heart attack. And everybody around the people I knew who knew him just felt it was from uh, just smoking too much dope. He just couldn't stop. Is it possible that his heart attack was brought on by years of getting high? Yeah, you know, there th that kind of research is really just starting to kick off. It's not a profound effect like with cocaine, for example, but, um, you know, there is a very reliable, as I said, increase by about 10 to 15 beats per minute when people smoke. And there is some indication, there's some epidemiological studies suggesting that people who have maybe a vulnerability in cardiovascularly or that there could, it could increase the risk for a cardiovascular event. It still sounds iffy. Well, it's not as, it's, again, it's, it's not crack cocaine. You know, it's not, it's not as this, this enormous, robust cardiovascular event, but it is, it definitely has a, an increased heart rate. So you refer continually to uh, cannabis, to the drug, the chemical that makes you high, to this and that, but there's several chemicals involved. And we have a voicemail that I think is going to ask a form of this question that might be clearer than I'm able to ask. Let's roll that digital recording. Hi, Bill Nye. Uh, my question is, what is the difference between Delta-8 THC and Delta-9 THC? Thank you. Wow, that's that's advanced class. <laughs> Let's start with, start with THC and then get to the differences. So there's a reason people are starting to get very curious about Delta-8. I, I, I can tell you it involves money. But um, the plant itself has, you know, hundreds of, you know, over 140 anyway, different chemical components, cannabinoids, we call them. They're unique to the cannabis plant. 
And many of them are called minor cannabinoids. Delta-8 is a minor cannabinoid. And that means it's typically present in very low levels in THC. The one that everyone makes money on and loves is Delta-9 THC. So that's what most plants are bred to have high levels of Delta-9. And that's just continuing to rise because that's that's the one that really gets you the, the cannabis effect you most know about. CBD, we'll, we'll talk about as well. That's the other primary cannabinoid we've been studying a lot. There's many, many others, though, that are minor cannabinoids, as I said, present in very low levels. So Delta-8 is, again, very present in low levels. But now with the legalization of hemp with the farm bill, there are people now spraying Delta-8 on hemp and selling it. Delta-8 is not well understood, but it is thought to be sim like a, a less potent version of Delta-9. I've never been able to study it. No, nobody I know has done careful study with it, but there has been a few, you know, open label studies with Delta. What do you mean by open label? What's open label mean? So it's it's where you tell the patients what they're getting and the doctors know what they're giving. And so they're typically not viewed by people like me, you know, put a lot of weight behind it because there's a lot of problems when you do studies that way. But but anyway, Delta 8, we don't know a lot about, but I think there's a lot of curiosity about it because it appears to be on sale in certain states right now because people are, again, there's billions of dollars being made with this whole cannabis story. And we're very limited in what's legal because, again, by federal standards, the whole plant is a, is illegal. It's a Schedule 1 drug like LSD or heroin. The plant is Schedule 1 but how are they selling it in Washington state? So it's uh, so states are, of course, you know, each state has its own hodgepodge of legal, medical, recreational, you know, CBD only. So each state has its own hodgepodge of laws. The federal government is kind of just um, close its eyes and ears around this fact that it's a schedule one drug. So meanwhile, states are doing what they're doing. No one's really clamping down on that. As a aside, as a federal researcher, I still have to go by that schedule one standing. So when I get cannabis, it's in a 600 pound safe behind a door I get into with my fingerprint. And I have to save all the butts because they're considered like heroin. What you're saying is it's it's very difficult to study. So what are the what are the obstacles? Like, was it difficult to get funding? Was it difficult to establish this this lab? What did you have to go through to do what you do? The obstacles are enormous to study a schedule one drug. You know, again, what we need as a society desperately is really well-controlled studies for the for the medical use of cannabis. That's the other thing. There's been very, very, very little good medical study of cannabis because it's Schedule One. So people are using it you know, <laughs> everywhere all day long for pain and for all sorts of things. Nobody's done the research. There's been just a tiny, tiny bit, and it's because it's Schedule One. It's very, very hard to study. So, so if if you were in charge, what would you do? Make it some other at the very least, and what you know is to allow researchers to treat it like a Schedule Two or an e as a drug. We can do the studies then. Right now, for, I can't even get the compounds I want. I can't even study CBD. There's no source of CBD in this country that the FDA would approve me to study. So, so the what does Schedule Two mean? What's what's a, an example of a Schedule Two drug? So schedule one drugs are, are LSD, heroin and cannabis, and they're considered drugs with high abuse liability and no medical benefit. Schedule two is still considered with abuse liability, but they have medical benefit and they include drugs like Vicodin, methadone, cocaine, um, fentanyl, 
and Adderall, for example. So, so they do have some abuse liability, a considerable amount of abuse liability, but they also have medical benefit, unlike purportedly cannabis. <laughs> just again, so as society is, is just getting, you know, broader and looser and, and using cannabis for everything right now and CBD, my world has gotten actually harder. So it's, 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 it's my source of drug is I have one place I can get it. And so that limits me. Once I do get it and I have the funding to do it, the FDA and the DEA have to approve the research that I'm doing. The FDA, you know, is appropriately very cautious about what they let scientists give to people. And so they want to make sure it doesn't have mold, fungus, you know, pesticides. So so that's why we can only get it from this one source is because this, this government farm has done all the all the work and can show the FDA this is from seed to plant. This is what's happened to this thing. So it's safe. So we know it's safe as opposed to if I go to dispensary, I don't know if it really contains what they're saying it contains. I don't know what how it was grown and, you know, all, all, all those all those details. So so there's just a lot, a lot to to do the funding. You know, again, the National Institute of Drug Abuse recognizes cannabis is a is a drug of abuse so that they're willing to fund those studies. Another portion of my research, though, is also its potential therapeutic use. So these studies are hard to do, but I'm also I want to do placebo control because that's that's kind of my religion. And that's that's something that's so hard to do. But I do have the setup to do it. So so I've been dipping my toes into as many medical questions as, as I can to just answer some of those. Stick around for more science rules after this. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and French fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at oceocean.com. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. Science Rules is back. This is a big deal. I mean, in my neighborhood, it seems like there's a store on pretty much every block selling CBD oil with some medical claims attached to it. And you're telling me nobody is studying that? There's no science behind that? Not only that, very few contain the amount of CBD that they say they contain, if they say what, what they have in it at all. They can contain active medical ingredients. Sometimes they have THC. Sometimes they have many other things. They put other ingredients in it because no one's really minding the store. The FDA, very, you know, on occasion, they'll clamp down hard and say, stop saying CBD does that. And they'll go after a company and say, you can't say it cures cancer. But, they, you know, their fight, it's whack-a-mole. It's constant. <laughs> it's everyone's claiming CBD. So people come to me often and say, you know, where could I get CBD to to study? And I, I there's no source that I trust right now. You know, CBD is something I'm very interested in. I'm doing studies on it. But at this moment, I can't tell you it does anything except 
decreased seizures in gravely ill children who have a seizure disorder. That That's where the studies have been done. They're well conducted. And, and so we know that's one thing CBD does. We can feel certain about. But the rest of it, you don't know if it has CBD. If you rub it on your arm versus smoke it versus swallow it, that's all going to give you a difference. Okay. okay. So we have some great listener questions. Listen, we have some listener questions. Try this one. We have one about uh, CBD and uh, relieving pain. Can we roll that voicemail? Yes. My question is about CBD. I see so many claims about its ability to relieve pain, but I'm not sure whether any of that is real or hype. Is there any research, any evidence to show that CBD does have pain relieving capability? Um, the short answer, no. <laughs> um, you know, again, we have preclinical studies suggesting it has anti-inflammatory effects. I think that there is going to be something shown, but what type of pain? What, you know, and how, what route of administration? Rubbing it on your elbow that hurts versus smoking it. Very, very different. So we are doing a study. We just completed a study. I'm really excited about the use of CBD for a certain type of neuropathic pain, chemotherapy-induced neuropathic pain. So people who are treated for breast cancer, they take these medications that, that destroy, you know, or harm their nerve cells. And they're, the majority have this terrible pain in their hands and feet, typically. And in animals, there's good evidence that CBD with a little bit of THC really is effective for that type of pain. So it's not going to work for every type of pain if it works at all. And we have to know the dose and we have to know how to take it. So there's a million questions we have to still ask. But for me to do this study, I had to import it from Canada. I had to get an importer's license, DEA Schedule 1 importer's license and get it from Canada because there was no source of, of CBD that the FDA trusted in the United States. So what you're buying at the farmer's market or at the store, you have no idea what you're getting. And <laughs> CBD isn't 100% inert, you know. So, again, at certain doses, it can it has liver consequences. It can change the, the way you metabolize other medications. So you can't just gobble it up by, you know, the fistful and not think it's going to have some and plus, effect. There must, there must be a genetic component. That is to say the hand you're dealt by nature can we roll the voicemail from Shiloh, which may help focus this question? Hi, Bill and Corey. This is Shiloh from Montana. I was wondering what the scientific answer to what a bad trip on CBD is. I understand that everyone kind of has different experiences, but is it just like an overstimulation of the nerves? A bad trip. We got a lot of very slow questions this time around. I'm not yeah, sure why. We really? Did. She was I'm asking. Not kidding. Yeah. Is <laughs> that was, one of the? She was, she was is asking. that one of the things you test, <laughs> Meg? For reals, you know, anecdotally. Yeah. The, spe the speed of people's speech. They really do sound slow. Is that one of the things you test for? I can tell you that 25 years of working with cannabis smokers has been a delight. They're a delightful group of people, but I have not measured. <laughs> I'm telling you, you bring them into the waiting room, they're friends, they're friends within 15 minutes. It's a, it's been a, they're a great group to work with, but yeah, that didn't sound terribly unfamiliar to me. Okay. So her, Shiloh's question was a bad trip on CBD. Is there such a thing? 
you know, my, I think, uh, the most parsimonious answer, she, there was probably something else in there, but there is something that, you know, I've given very high doses of CBD orally in pill form, and I don't see anything. People don't report, they can't tell it from placebo. But there is an interesting work out of uh, Johns Hopkins showing that when you smoke CBD or vape it, that it has some effect, and it's pure CBD, that no one can define. It's not like a typical marijuana high. It's another kind of high. So the, the important thing to know is CBD really has a completely different mechanism of action than THC. So nobody understands entirely how it works. It seems to bind to a lot of different receptors. So the answer is either something else was in there or if she smoked it, there might have been there is some kind of effect that happens, a little bit of an intoxication. But the funny thing is nobody can describe it. Can we roll this this voicemail from Alan? Hey, Bill. All right. Uh, my name's Alan. I'm calling from New Jersey. They legalized marijuana yesterday, and that's awesome. It's so cool. It's legal now. Um, my question is, how come, like, when my friends and I smoke it legally, of course, we cough a lot. How come, does that affect our lungs? Are, are our lungs as black as those advertisements for, like, to stop smoking cigarettes? That's my question. Thank you. I've wondered about that, too. Is marijuana smoke as dangerous as cigarette smoke? No, it's it's a really interesting question. And, you know, of course, we the short answer is there is a risk from smoking. Smoking anything is harmful. And so there's increased uh, likelihood of bronchitis and other respiratory ills from smoking marijuana. There's a scientist, Donald Tashkin, out in California, who is an pulmonology expert, and he has done study after study to see about increased cancer risk with people who smoke marijuana. It's tricky because most marijuana smokers, many also smoke tobacco cigarettes, but there hasn't been any good link between cannabis smoking and cancer, which is, it's been a, a fascinating area. There is some anti-tumor effects of THC that, in, you know, there's, there's evidence of that, but... There's evidence of anti-tumor? Yes, there is some really, really intriguing, particularly for brain cancer. So that was one of the main things we were studying. Glioblastoma, there's a fascinating and exciting uh, early, early research about CBD and THC for glioblastoma. That, you what's, know, that's a what's glioblastoma? Terrible, terrible uh, brain cancer. And um, that's what Joe Biden's son died of. And it's it's dire. You get the diagnosis and, and you know, the fatality within within a year and a half is, is like 95%. So it's a terrible, terrible form of cancer. And there's preclinical studies and in vitro studies showing that CBD, again, and THC have anti-tumor effects for that type of cancer. Again, early, early stages, I'm not recommending anybody go out and, 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 and smoke. So we did do a study with one patient, and then there's been a recent uh, publication showing that it improves survival rate and you know, the, the FDA gave it a special uh, waiver to do this study because the data are really interesting. So there's a lot more to be done, but CBD and THC for that type of cancer, uh, very intriguing. So but back to the lung, all I can say is there's no clear link between cannabis use and lung cancer, but certainly smoking has respiratory effects. Again, it, it, it increased bronchitis and other sorts of respiratory ills. It just hasn't been linked to cancer. So vaping the plant, I believe, doesn't have necessarily 
quite have the same lung consequences of smoking, of inhaling a burning plant versus heating it up enough to get the volatile gases from the plant. But I do want to quickly say, don't ever vape the THC oils that there's been horrible, horrible, horrible consequences of. What's what's a horrible consequence of vaping THC oil? It's like mustard gas disease. I mean, people have died. Young people are in the hospital last summer. There was a whole uh, series because street chemists were putting THC in vitamin E oil, thinking, oh, vitamin E is healthy. It's healthy to rub on your skin, not to inhale into your lungs. So when you inhale THC with vitamin E, it has horrible, they call it popcorn lungs. It does terrible things to the lungs. So wow. I try to tell all my participants, you know, vaping the plant is one thing, but vaping those oils, you have to be super, super careful with. Um, so when you say bought on the street, is this as opposed to buying in a dispensary? Is there some quality control that we don't know? You know, about? there is purportedly. I don't trust a lot of it. Um, I, you know, vaping the plant, one thing. Vaping oil, just really know your source. <laughs> Hi, Bill. I was just wondering if you could explore um, pregnant women and the effects of using cannabis when you're pregnant or during postpartum. Thank you so much. I'm a huge fan and I'm a teacher. So thank you. Bye. So I have a very strong opinion about this because, you know, one thing we haven't talked about is the role of cannabis and cannabinoids in brain development. So, you know, we've been talking about the plant, which is called, you know, phytocannabinoids, but there is also in our brain endocannabinoids. So we have an, an enormous number of chemicals that resemble THC that and they're called endocannabinoids and we have a, a enormous number of receptors uh, cannabinoid receptors and they play a vital role in almost all brain development the cannabinoid receptor is one of the most common G protein coupled receptors in the brain so anyway very very important and, and they play a role in brain development so exposing a developing brain to these chemicals, I think is, is really, really not wise. There are two in times of brain development that where the brain is developing at this enormous pace. It's in utero and it is, uh, in adolescence. So adolescence, of course, many people start smoking cannabis then. I have two sons. They're in their twenties now, but I really just tried very hard to make sure there wasn't a ton of cannabis use happening at these critical times of brain development. It's one thing if you're 35 smoking every day. It's another thing if you're 14 smoking every day. So, but really think very long and hard. And, you know, dispensaries, unfortunately, you call and say you're a pregnant woman who is, is nauseated. They recommend you come in and get cannabis. And that is, I think that's criminal. I think, you know, I-, I Wow. I wow. Meg. Brain development is happening, and you, uh, uh, there's a biological plausibility that's going to have a very strong impact. Biological plausibility. So along that line, can we roll the voicemail from Peyton? Hey, Bill and Corey. My question is about CBD and THC use. I'm a high school student, and I get a lot of questions from some of my other friends about the usage, since they think I'm the smart one. Um, about how it affects the brain and like, do I, does anybody know the science behind it, especially in younger crowds during high school and college? So I was wondering if you could tell me the answer so that I could tell them to make me look smart. You know, unfortunately, those, particularly for men, it takes quite a while for that last part of the brain to really develop that prefrontal cortex. So I look forward to it in myself. So it's just, 
everything, you know, the poisons in the dose. So again, if you're going to be smoking cannabis, just try not to make it a daily or an all day phenomenon. It's one, it's, it's <laughs> just all in the dose. You know, an again, all day phenomenon. Wow. Which again, not hard to find. And I, uh, that these are my participants. These are my research participants. So they're not, they're not hard to find. So, you know, my recommendation really, because it does not have good cognitive effects. We don't think that they're permanent, but you certainly know that uh, cognition is affected when you're, when you're, when you're intoxicated. So, you know, your memory, short-term memory is affected. So it's not going to help your cause in college. So you just try to try to be reasonable. <laughs> Can we roll this voicemail about the endocannabinoid system? I know you touched on it, but I, this, I hope, will help me understand it. Can, let's roll that digital recording. Hey, Bill. I'm a really big fan of your podcast. And my question is about the endocannabinoid system. What exactly is it? Is everyone's system different or are we all kind of the same? Also, why don't they teach this system in schools, say medical school, PA school, nursing school? You know, simple stuff like that. All right, awesome. I cannot wait to hear the answer. Bye. It's a system. And, you know, what she touched upon is is relative to many other systems. This is a fairly new one. You know, we didn't really find the the cannabinoid receptors until the 80s and, and really the chemicals in the brain until the 90s. So. So this is new for us. So that's why it's a really exciting science to study. It's poorly taught. I, you know, I think it's terrible for physicians. Everyone says, ask your doctor about cannabis and cannabinoids. And they don't know because there's no data. So in terms of the endocannabinoid system, there has been an enormous uh, growth in that area. Um, you know, again, we know that they play a role in, in brain development. We know they play a role in stress and anxiety, food intake a whole range of physiological systems because it's really all throughout the brain. And there are genetic and individual differences. I'm sure you all know people who smoke and they get instantly, all their anxiety goes away. The, every single one of my participants who smokes very, very heavily, the reason they smoke is it takes their stress away. But many others get anxious. So, uh, you know, many people who don't go on to smoke heavily get anxious. And in fact, people are smoking this really high potent stuff often end up in the ER with a panic attack, not for anything other than that, but they're, so people's response to the plant and their anxiety is, it seems to be genetic. We seem to starting to work that out, but people really vary in that. And that's because of their endocannabinoid system. So how does it work? Is it like dopamine receptors? Like, and they're in a specific place in the brain? Yeah, the CB1 receptors are really everywhere in all of the areas you think about with cannabis intoxication. So they're in areas associated with pain. They're in areas associated with, you know, pleasure. What's the evolutionary reason or pathway that these things came to be? They're all over your brain, huh? They're all over your brain. So you know that they're they're important and that they, they've been around for a while. Um, you know, stress, you know, the amygdala, that area of the brain that, that mediates stress, the endocannabinoids play a critical role in modulating that. And, and that's a critical evolutionary, uh, characteristic, you know, the, the ability to respond to stress and to respond, know when to be afraid and know when not to be afraid. And there's a Scottish woman who happens to have this genetic SNP, where she has very, very high levels of one of the endocannabinoids. And the reason why they figured it out is she has almost no pain. She's had surgery with very, very little um, anesthesia. 
and she has very little anxiety. So she has it's it, of course it's an N of one and it's but it's just a fascinating kind of little link into that somebody with these high levels of endogenous cannabinoids has these traits. It seems dangerous, like you cut yourself and not know it. And yeah. Yeah, I think it is dangerous. But, you know, her, her lack of anxiety is also really intriguing, you know. Wow. Science Rules will be right back. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. You're listening to Science Rules. Hi, Bill Nye. I'm calling because I guess you guys are talking about cannabis soon. And I was just wondering if maybe you could talk about the neurological effects. Uh, I know most people smoke it for, like, anxiety, to deal with that and how it calms them down or makes them more relaxed. And I'm just wondering if you could cover that. As a veteran, I use it as well for the same reasons. And it just seems to just, you know, mellow me out. And I kind of want to know what's the reason for that. You know, my my guess is that, you know, as I was mentioning, the endocannabinoids play this critical role in stress response in the amygdala. And, you know, too much, I think, will send you one way and too little will send you the other way. So, you know, I think for, for, for many individuals, the combination of bringing in cannabinoids and having your own set of supplies can be a, a nice a nice mix. Many people, though, can't find a dose that where they feel comfortable. They just get anxious or uncomfortable or paranoid. And so these are people that don't end up using marijuana because it doesn't give them the effect that they like. They don't calm down. In fact, it's the opposite. And my guess is this is happening at the level of the amygdala and it's an interaction with your own endogenous supply. But in terms of, you know, how we know this role of anxiety, there's there's just really good preclinical models of anxiety. And you could play with the exact amount of endocannabinoids in the amygdala and look at behavior and see anxiogenic versus anxiolytic types of behavior. And you can raise the endocannabinoids in that one brain site in, in animals and see a reduction in anxiety. So that's how you get at the mechanism. And what about in your research where you're studying uh, human primates, <laughs> your actual actual marijuana smokers, are you able to map the correlation between how much they smoke, what they smoke, and their anxiety levels? Is that something you can study? You know, we measure anxiety, you know, all throughout the day in the lab. I don't try to map it with what they're smoking outside. But, you know, one of the major areas I see anxiety is when they're in withdrawal. Ah, ah, ah. So again, like the symptoms of withdrawal are really um, anxiety, irritability, restlessness, just an uncomfortable and, and really disrupted sleep. Sleep is very sensitive to cannabis effects. Many people smoke to help them sleep, but then boy, when they quit, sleep is messed up. <laughs> and the other marked thing we see in the lab is food intake drops to nothing. I mean, I've had people, I had to beg them to eat something because sometimes their, their caloric intake drops to almost nothing for the first day or two, and then that kind of recovers. But the mood symptoms creep up a little later. So it's irritability, anxiety, restlessness. 
you know, and they'll last, you know, they'll peak around three to five days of withdrawal. Again, cigarettes, the withdrawal kicks in very quickly because it's this, you know, it's it's water soluble. It comes on quick. It goes away quick. So withdrawal is very quick with cannabis. Again, that lipophilicity, it's slower. Usually takes at least 24 hours for withdrawal to kick in. Lipophilicity, loving of fats. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So three days later is when the withdrawal effect is the strongest. Well, the mood stuff. I mean, that sleep is, and that's disrupt. That's that's terrible for people that have that disrupted sleep. And and there's an interesting phenomenon no one's really able to sort out. But the other thing is, people have nightmares. Their dreams become much more vivid. So cannabis, I think, suppresses REM sleep. And so when people come off, you get that overshoot, but that one lasts a long time. So people report disrupt, like dreaming and nightmares, particularly for weeks, everything else goes away. Everything else recovers. But the one thing um, that seems to last is this nightmares that, that can last for a long time. So we're talking about a lot of different ideas about, about marijuana, about CBD, about THC, not just advertising things that you see in the, in the store on the corner, but in popular news articles, there are all these different claims and hunches about what they do. Where do those things come from? If we're if we can't really study it, if we don't really have good science, where do these kind of half formed ideas come from? Sometimes there's a there's a kernel of truth or a hint of something, and that's that. Then they just make a mountain of it. So, for example, there is some kind of evidence that a single dose of CBD has a small decrease in anxiety when you have you give people a public speaking task, which makes them very anxious. That you'll see a, a little blip in that, but it was one dose and a small change. So, but that was the study, and it was published. But then it became well, CBD helps with anxiety. You know, done and done. And so, so, so again, it sometimes can start with a, a kernel of truth, and a lot is made well, of it from there. Intuitively, if it affects the way you feel so strongly. It would not be surprising if it has some effect on pain or anxiety or any th any emotion. It's just intuitively I can see where you... But CBD presume. doesn't really do that. If people, again, you can pound them with CBD and they can't tell they took it versus versus placebo. It's It doesn't have a lot of effects, psychotropic effects. THC certainly does. <laughs> but, but it does have an effect on their endocannabinoids. We don't know a lot about what CBD does to, to the endocannabinoids. So it's just a fad. It's just an intuitive fad. So we know it's doing a few things. You know, it's, it, it's involved with these certain receptors that seem to be involved in inflammation and pain. So it's not inert. And I, I, again, I think we will tease out what it does, but it's just the, the public has jumped so far ahead of the science. And, you know, it's not doing anyone any good until we really sort it out. But the, you know, the, the other thing we don't talk a lot about, and, and it's why my religion is placebo-controlled studies, is, is the expectancy effect. And we know with pain, in particular, pain is so sensitive to a placebo effect. So is anxiety. The two primary reasons people are using medical cannabis, pain and anxiety, if you believe that that lotion is helping your elbow, it will. It literally shuts down that pain pathway all the way from the brain down to the down to the elbow. So placebos do physiologically work. And so, yes, you might feel better with that CBD, even though it doesn't even have CBD, even though it doesn't get absorbed because of this enormous placebo effect. But it seems like nobody cares or the marketers have taken over. It's just... It, 
we want to know what it works for and what it doesn't work for. And what there's so much culture. There's so much and culture. And there's money. They, not to be cynical, but right now it's a billion-dollar industry. They're starting to use the same tactics as tobacco companies. It's it, it's something with tremendous medical potential. We, I believe, will find reasons for it, but it's not going to work for everything. And that's how it's being sold. And CBD is a giant unknown still. That being said, the placebo effect is so real that I'm sure there are a lot of people feeling better with whatever CBD conditioner they're putting on their hair. So, you know, that's good for that individual, but it just can't be our medical policy. Well, I think you hit it just now that there's so much interest and so many different stories chasing so little information that even these these little research findings get blown out of proportion. Is that is that right? Yeah, I, I, I agree with that completely. Yeah. Corey, wait, Corey, wait. Corey, Corey. Bill, I hear something. Yeah, whoa, it's, it's loud. loud. <laughs> it's really loud. Dude. Man, it sounds like lightning. Yeah, I think we need to do the lightning round where we're going to ask kind of quick questions. Ladies and, and gentlemen, Corey Powell <laughs> is a thespian performing the marijuana enjoying co-host experiencing thunder, bringing us to the lightning round. What's the most misunderstood part of your research? I think, you know, it, this is more of a practical answer than anything else is that everybody thinks that because marijuana is now so available that my life is a dream and easy, where in fact, the regulatory has gotten harder. So again, just because marijuana is everywhere, everyone thinks, oh, good, you're, you, it's like you're a kid in the candy store. You can study whatever you want. It has no bearing on what I could do. In fact, it's harder than ever. So why is it harder than ever? Because the regulatory requirements not only haven't loosened, if anything, they've gotten stricter over the 25 years I've been doing this. And um, it's, it's a much harder life. So that's why we don't know as much science as we should about this widely used drug. What's worse for you, drinking alcohol or smoking weed? If I were designing a society, the last, perhaps the last thing I would legalize would be alcohol. It, it's really at doses, high enough doses. It's the most neurotoxic. It has the most behavioral toxicity. It's the only drug associated with real increased violence. And you can see this in mice, rats, monkeys, and everything else. I used to study aggression. Alcohol on many levels is a terrible, terrible drug that I happen to like very much in small doses. Well, they, uh, we tried uh, prohibiting it, but it did, didn't work out. Yeah. So like that's out of the barn. Tobacco's out of the barn, too. We can do what we can. Those two are out of the barn. I have some ambivalence about the benefit of adding another illegal drug out of the barn, but it's out of the barn, too. Cannabis is out of the barn. So speaking of benefit, speaking of benefit, what's the biggest benefit of marijuana use? Well, I think we will be able to harness that plant um, for pain. There is some indication for pain. And I, I think this one type of pain, neuropathic pain, is not treated well by opioids at all. Um, we clearly need to decrease our opioid use. And I think we'll be able to find ways with cannabis to help alleviate pain in some ways. That's one one obvious thing. But again, there's a lot of science we need to do. That, that The things I mentioned, glioblastoma and you know, chemotherapy-induced neuropathic pain, there's so many questions to ask still. But those... what's, what's the biggest risk or danger of using marijuana? Is, it, is there any risk or danger? Does it just... Sure. 
There is. Absolutely. Well, you know, again, I mentioned the brain development issues, um, you know, at certain times of the life in particular. I think that, that it would be wise not to be using the, those things heavily. It has a, a cognitive effects, certainly. You know, there is if you have a cardiovascular predisposition, it probably isn't a great idea. Um, and, you know, a motivation has never been able to be demonstrated sufficiently in my mind. But, um, you know, we Many of us know anecdotally people who have trouble doing as much as they perhaps could have. So people seek treatment for cannabis. And that one of the primary reasons is they feel like it's impeded their ability to achieve what they could have achieved. So they might be still a waiter, even though they're a college graduate. You know, like they haven't it hasn't helped them achieve their goals. And they know that. So so that's one of the reasons do people do seek treatment for it is it does you know, there's a little bit of, you know, sit on the couch as opposed to get up and do something. Should we legalize marijuana nationwide, Meg, in your opinion? So you have to think about two different aspects of legalization. There's recreational and there's medical use. Recreational, I think, is within the realm of a society to determine for itself. Do we want this drug of abuse? Let's talk about the pros and cons. There's racial inequities in how it's prosecuted. There's a lot of reasons to one could argue for legalization. But to have people vote on medical, what is a medicine and what is not, is wrong. It's not ethical. It's not scientifically appropriate. And it's the reason why in New York, what it's a medicine for is completely different than what it is for New Jersey. And that's not based on data. So each state is voting on whether something's a medicine. We don't do that for antibiotics. We don't do that for chemotherapy agents. We don't vote. We, we look at data and make a decision. So right now, I think that that is it's bad for patients and it's bad for everyone to to do that. And and CBD now is, is another example of that. So I think we have to take the legalization of medical use. Let's get the data and say what it's a medicine for. Not so both. if you were if you were queen of the forest, if you were running the show, what would you do? I would open up the floodgates of research and test everything in a placebo controlled way. And then we could say to patients, this will help this type of pain. It won't help that type of pain. This will help this type of cancer. Maybe not that type. So of cancer. along that line, do we do we need to make marijuana at least or at most schedule two? That would help. That would help a lot. But you're queen of the forest. What, what would you do? I would open to researchers. I maybe would schedule it. I think researchers are going to do a, a careful job. They're not dispensing it to to everybody. So I would completely uh, free it up, free it up for scientific researchers. And there is a little hope there. Congress is actually moving. The DEA won't budge on this. Even you know under Obama, they decided, will we take it off? And, and what they say is we can't take it off because it hasn't demonstrated medical potential. But we can't demonstrate it has medical potential until we are. Uh, you're, you're caught in a loop. Yes, yes. So So they're not taking it off. So so we have to free up scientists. If you did free up scientists and you were queen of the forest and you could get access to all the marijuana varieties you wanted in H form that you'd want, Delta 8, Delta 9, THC, CBD, is there an R in the month? You could get all these things. How long do you think it would take you to reach significant usable medical conclusions? Some studies you could do in a year. You could. You could do placebo-controlled studies. Now, again, to get FDA approval would be a whole other level, and, and there's lots of lots of concerns with that. But, you know, just in my little lab, <laughs> you, can, you can move through. Two years, five years, 20 years. Yeah. Oh, I think five years for sure. So uh, when you're queen of the forest, 
We're going to do research. In five years, we're going to know answers to these very important medical questions. And we will make the world better for everyone. Thank you so much, Meg, for taking the time. Our guest today has been Dr. Margaret Haney, Professor of Neurobiology and Director of Columbia University's Cannabis Research Laboratory. Remember when it comes to seeing through the smoke around cannabis? <laughs> See what oh, we yes. Did there? Science, Science rules. rules. And if you like Science Rules, please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out, helps other people learn about the show. So thank you. Be sure to look at all my socials for more information about our upcoming guests. I'm at Bill Nye on everything. And meanwhile, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, give us a call at 201-472-0785 or submit a question at goodoldaskbillnye.com. Science Rules is produced by Harry Huggins and the very same Corey S. Powell. Dude. Frank Olson mixed this episode. Casey Alford composed our original theme. Josephine Martoren is our executive producer. And at Stitcher, everyone, Science, Science Rules. Rules. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions.